Let us pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for all of the birthdays we get to celebrate, God. Um, Joseph and Corinne and Brent. Um, just what an exciting week and just blessed lives that you've given us to, to celebrate and be a part of. We um, just pray over our community this week and the communities beside us that are going back into school. I would just pray that um, you would just calm the hearts of the kids and of the teachers, Lord, that you would just help the adults to, to just pour love into these kids as they get um, consistency back. And we just pray over our service today, Lord, that you would um, speak through Joseph in your name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Also, thank you, Paul and Kelly, for the donuts. I said when we set everything up after doing kids' church this last week, I uh, I don't know if I did the spacing quite right because there's a microphone right here, so I'll try not to get too filled with Holy Spirit in that direction. Uh, so, one of the things I've felt I feel I've been doing the past few weeks um, that that I mean it's kind of interesting how this happens in your own Bible study life is when you go through and you do a lesson on one thing uh, it's funny how sometimes individual pieces of scripture that are kind of over to the side or, or maybe kind of a, a tangent of whatever you originally studying becomes something that kind of kicks you off in a different direction and <clears throat> it's one of the reasons why. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I love different, you know, uh, a lot of people have written great books that have different Bible study plans and things like that in them. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think it's good to just kind of uh, meander through the scriptures a little bit, I guess, so to speak. And, you know, look at how things are cross-referenced and all that because it's kind of funny how that will bring you into things that speak to you in a little bit of a different way. And one of the things from one of the sermons we had recently that I was thinking about was <clears throat> when we were doing a – uh, doing a lesson and talking about how Christ doesn't necessarily come saying that I'm I'm here to get everybody on the same page and make everybody one big happy family that holds hands and sings kumbaya. That there is an aspect of division that comes along with the coming of Christ. And this is something we see Christ himself say in Luke 12, verse 50 through 53. So um, if you heard some of our, our, our previous sermons over the past couple weeks, and this should sound familiar. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The first thing I note in there is it doesn't say anything about mother-in-law against son-in-law, and... That's something I feel like was omitted from this that maybe needs to be in that scripture because I I, I love my in-laws. Hi, Nana. I know that you're watching this right now. Um, <clears throat> so when we sit here and look at this, what's fascinating about this is this idea of division. And one of the things we talked about several weeks ago was the fact that um, – you know, Christ talks about coming to, you know, to, to bring division, but then when you really decompose what that's talking about, it's talking about the fact that you have this world that kind of lives unto itself. And when Christ comes, he says, there's a new way, there's a, a, a different way, a better way to live your life, and that's living unto me instead of unto the world. And what that means is there's naturally going to be division. Because the entire world isn't just overnight going to go, bam, we're going to sit here and follow Christ. So there's naturally going to be a state of division, and that shouldn't be something... <clears throat> that we 
that we push off. It shouldn't be something that we necessarily fear in and of itself. And that's something that you do see so many uh, churches, you know, kind of starting to go off the beaten path with, where they're they're either compromising the the theology, so to speak, of what they want to preach, because they see that there's division between them and the rest of the world. And if the division itself isn't a problem, maybe the problem is lower attendance. Maybe the problem is lower tithes. Maybe the problem is you know, you're know you not getting the, the cloud and meeting all the benchmarks for growth that is an organization that you want to meet. And so what you naturally do is you start saying, well, I know we're supposed to be different from the rest of the world, but, but what's that really mean? Where, where's the line? You know, I mean, are there certain areas where maybe we can be kind of the same or maybe attract them a little bit? And there's certainly some goodness in wanting to meet people where they're at and wanting to be whatever you need to be to reach other people for Christ. But you know, there, there's at some point in which trying to be what you need to be to reach people for Christ starts differing dramatically from saying, I'm going to simply avoid certain subjects because that seems inconvenient, you know, or I'm going to sit here, maybe compromise what I claim the scriptures say, because that makes it more palatable to other people. Something that Paul and I were talking about as we were driving around and he was not hitting people with his high beams, but they all thought he was because he had like tons of weight in the back of his truck and his headlights were in people's eyes. Uh, one of the things we were talking about was he was he was talking about some sermons that had happened in the past where uh, it's something that we're, I think many of us are very familiar with this feeling, that you get in the middle of a sermon and you sit here and say like, you know, preacher, I came here to sing some pretty songs and like hear some Jesus stories. I didn't come here to get convicted. That's I didn't come here to get attacked today. And you know, so you end up leaving almost like having this like like feeling like, well, what, you know, what, what's the big deal? I didn't come here to get picked on. Um, but in reality, you know that that's that you know constant struggle in between our worldly self and our our new self. That is something that has rejected the things of this world. You know, to sit here and say that hey, sometimes that means we need to be called you know called accountable for for who we are or what we've done. Um, now, this is something that I, I think kind of gets into a subject that's very hard for many just people in, in life, and that is the subject of change. Whenever people change, you know, especially when they change their focus or they change what they're dedicated to, that can be a very hard transition. Um, this is something, this idea of personal change, you know, is, is not anything that's a secret to anybody. One of the things that... <clears throat> I know that if you are a, you know, if you're a parent that has has kids that have, you know, grown up, then you have experienced this thing where, you know, at some point in time, even though, you know, your your baby is always your baby, like Phoebe, my baby girl is always going to be my baby girl. But at some point in time, like that, that kid becomes an adult, right? And it's like the nature of the relationship changes a little bit because they now uh, serve kind of a different role. Like the way I interact with them is different. And it can be a struggle changing the fact that in a sense they have kind of a different identity. It's rooted in who they were in the past, but they now have some different parts about them. And that can be hard adjusting to who that person is and kind of working with them. With coworkers, if you've ever experienced this thing where somebody where you either used to be a coworker with them or a colleague and all of a sudden you or them becomes like the supervisor, that can be incredibly difficult. I have one of those things in my 
day job where a couple a couple of years ago I got a I got a, a more of a managerial kind of position at least for part of my time and somebody I worked alongside with for you know many years that you know we were very good friends with he just couldn't make that leap because I was supposed to be his bro I was supposed to be his friend as soon as I was his you know as soon as I was his supervisor he couldn't make that leap and so that that transition to say here's somebody who now has a little bit of a different identity that can be very hard um, we talk about the you know I Joking about the whole in-law thing, that can be a struggle to sit here and look at you know this individual who previously was just kind of like dating your child to say this is now like a part of my family. It, 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 all of this is you know minor compared to the dramatic changes that occur within us whenever we dedicate ourselves to a life that's now focused on Christ. Because once we do that, we now have this different persona, this new identity where we've been totally recreated, and it can be very difficult for people around us to support us sometimes. Not necessarily because they mean ill will for us or anything like that, but because they don't understand. It can be difficult for people to adapt to the fact that you are now new. <clears throat> and this is not something that is you know, unique to people who are not Christians when reacting to somebody who's come to Christ. It can go the other way, too. It can be you know, when it comes to individuals who maybe are Christians and they knew you in a past life, and now you have made this change on the inside. It can be very difficult for them to let go of all of the trespasses that have been committed against them uh, to say, like, hey, this is, this is a new person. This is a new creation now. I'm not trying to sit here and get into what the difference is between God forgiving you of your sins versus you know, uh, earthly consequences and all that. I'm not getting into all that. But I'm just saying that, you know, at some point in time, we have to acknowledge that people are truly different at a certain point. You know, I've heard people say before, you know, this this whole idea of, uh, you know, God can do all things, but also we have to be pragmatic. And whenever I hear that phrase, sometimes I hear that, like I know what they're saying, but a part of me hears that and sometimes goes, oh, so what you mean is you just don't want to do the faith thing. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, 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 I understand that there is something to discernment and wisdom and all of those things, but we have to acknowledge that if we believe that Jesus Christ truly has this transformative power to, to make us something entirely new from what we were in the past, then we have to acknowledge that God can do the exact same thing to other people, which means we have to be willing to look at individuals and actually treat them as new creations. <clears throat> This is something that Jesus himself experienced, you know, <clears throat> not to say that Jesus somehow became a new creation, but at a certain point in time, people who maybe knew him before had to look at him in a different light. This is something that sometimes we don't think about when we think about the life of Christ, but it's kind of, it's interesting because to me, this is one of those areas where the life of Christ becomes something that like we can understand and kind of relate to very easily. So in Luke 4, we see this story. And it's, uh, it starts out with Jesus, and he's uh, in Nazareth, right? So he's in his hometown with all the people that he basically grew up with, who knew him for many, many years. And we see this. Jesus' own hometown rejection starts uh, in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim uh, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. Now what I love about this 
this picture here is you have these individuals who know Jesus and a lot of people have kind of hypothesized what they think Jesus was like growing up because I mean he was still a kid like he was still a teenager and there's lots of funny rambunctious things that kids and teenagers do that we look at that and go like ah geez don't do that that aren't sense right and so you gotta imagine that jesus probably did some dopey things as a kid just like everybody else i'm sure that you know my daughter the other day was screaming because like she wanted a grape or something and so i turned around she was like Tada, i want grape i want grape and I was like, we can't have grapes because we're going to have dinner. And she's like, Dada, I want grapes. And she starts wailing. And I was just like, in my head, I was thinking, I don't give in to anything with my kids. But I was just like, this isn't really – they're asking for a grape. They're not asking for candy or anything. So I was like, you know what? We can, ha- we can have we can have a grape. Okay, we can have one grape. Can you have one? And she went, no. And I was like, do you want grapes? She went, no. And, and then I said, well, well, what do you want? And she just goes, no, and then starts screaming. And you can't help but laugh. I mean, because your kid's like having this horrible time, but you're just like, I know it's that they can't process their emotions and everything, but it's funny because they're being irrational. You know Jesus had moments like that. You know, I'm sure he didn't walk around like some stoic Greek character off of a uh, an ancient play or something like that and just say wise things as a little kid, or else he would have stuck out, you know? So... That being said, these people knew Jesus growing up. And so he he, he got, stands up in the middle of the synagogue and he goes to read the scroll. Um, what's interesting is so you look in here and the way the scripture words it is that it says, as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, the reason why that as usual thing is important is because this is something that was cultural. So something that people would do at that point in time is they would uh, go into the synagogue. And you understand like a, like a church service wasn't really like this you know uh what what we do as a church service would actually look a little odd to them um because it wouldn't be as interactive it's one of the reasons why you know we're kind of trying to enter you know introduce some interactive elements to, to the service but you know with them it was very much a like people would come in and they'd read from the synagogue and in fact if you came if you were either a visitor coming in or you were somebody who had left for a while and had come back sometimes they would let you read from the torah torah because that was kind of a a honored thing, you know, where they'd sit there and say, like, we want to respect you and honor you, so we're going to let you read from the Torah. So Jesus walks in, you know, having not been here in Nazareth for a while, and he goes back up, and when he goes back up, they they have him go up and uh, read the Torah. So he reads this prophecy of, uh, you know, of Isaiah, where it's talking about the coming of a Messiah, and then he just kind of, like, closes everything up and sits down. And you got to imagine that was kind of a funny, awkward moment where, I mean, it, it almost kind of portrays this image that, uh, you know, there was just kind of this, like, silence afterwards. And then as he's sitting down, he just goes, I'm this guy, you know. So where he, he, he's telling saying that the scripture has been fulfilled and the reaction of everybody else is exactly what you would expect. So often we think about these stories in the Bible, and I keep going back to we think of these things as these stoic Greek plays that are occurring with people speaking in eloquent tongues and things like that. But everybody else basically just kind of like gets a confused look and stares at him. Because uh, in verse 22 we see, They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the, great, by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And this is the kind of thing that I, I, I feel like uh, 
you know, it, it reminds me of some some interactions I've had with other individuals when I'm I'm working a day job and we're sitting here and kind of laughing. And especially if you know you work for the Navy and people say things and make jokes and tell stories and things like that that are kind of all kinds of unsultry things. And you know, if I'm in the room, I kind of chuckle at something. Like one time, I had somebody like there was somebody told a story and it was objectively funny, and I kind of laughed. And they looked at me and they said like, "I'm sorry, you're supposed to be a preacher, right?" And I said, "Well, not a good one." And that was kind of like that was kind of my bit. And I know I've said that like several times, but like. That's kind of that that that's kind of what you know you you the the attitude I almost read this whole thing with was one where everybody's looking at Jesus and kind of saying he says he's this Messiah guy and on the one hand we're amazed because we can tell there's something about him like we can you know we're all impressed at the the wisdom that's coming from him and everything but then at the same time you kind of go I'm sorry isn't this the kid that picked his nose growing up? Isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, that's, and I'm hoping that my son isn't that son, but he probably will be. Uh, so, you know, but it just kind of highlights the fact that even Jesus experienced this uh, th- this kind of situation where he was being called into his ministry. He was being called to begin the work that God had laid out for him. But yet these individuals who knew him from a past life had a hard time moving on and starting to treat him in this new role. And as a result of what we'll see here in a moment is that the individuals who couldn't make that leap were ended up being de- kind of denied the blessings of experiencing Christ's power because of that. Um, this is something that I know I, I, I feel like myself. I've, I've kind of experienced this in my own uh, ministerial career because, you know, you come kind of come out of just being the um, – uh, young, dumb, you know, 20-something-year-old uh, out of college and showing up and, and doing, like, youth ministry stuff. And no one takes the youth minister uh, seriously, and probably appropriately so. But then you kind of, like, go through and you have your ups and downs and everything, and you hit a point where all of a sudden you're, you know, kind of taking on a different call. You feel that God has called you to do more, and so you go through and you get ordained, you start doing the pastoral thing, and a lot of people kind of still have that in their head that, well, wait, this is still just that young, dumb 20-year-old. And what I want to do is look at him and say, no, I'm a young, dumb 35-year-old uh, or 36-year-old now. Um, but, you know, people all the time have this very difficult time in our own lives. And I think if we think about any moment in our lives where we've ever tried to make a commitment in our lives to Christ or maybe even like a recommitment to like like renew that we need to get back on the right track when it comes to things that we do, a lot of people have a hard time looking at us and actually kind of supporting us through that change frequently because either A – they have their own issues of faith, or B, maybe they've never experienced the truly transformative nature of Jesus Christ. And the important takeaway for us is to understand that for those people who maybe have not understood that, or maybe it's an issue of the weakness of their own faith, we shouldn't allow their lack of belief or their lack of faith be something that compromises the commitment that we know that we have made in our hearts. Sometimes it does come up to down to us being willing to stand firm firm in what we know we believe and what Christ has done in our own lives. Fortunately, God frequently surrounds us by individuals to help us in that journey. It just may not be the people that we're used to dealing with that. It may be new people. It may be a new crowd. This is exactly what Paul experienced because you, you think about it when Saul was, when Paul was Saul, you know, and was uh, doing some not great things like hunting and killing Christians, then, you know, that was obviously a past life that take takes a lot of work to shake loose. You know, people aren't likely to just sit here and forget the the whole thing where you were uh, putting people on trial and, you know, basically enabling the stoning of these different, you know, early apostles and whatnot. But yet, 
Paul had that experience. He had that transformative, life-changing experience, you know, actually experiencing Jesus Christ. What we what we read through the the hermeneutics of the Bible that you know is very much like a like an actual experience with Christ uh, transforms him into a new person, and yet people have a hard time making that leap of logic to say. Well, this is this is a new Saul. This is transformed Saul. And again, you can understand why. But just listen to this little bit from his own story in Acts 9. Starting in verse 26. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So you can see that in Saul's own life, he also struggled with the fact that he had an old life. He had who he used to be. And even between the individuals who espouse uh, these lessons of Jesus Christ, of transformation, of renewal, and of becoming a new creation, that frequently we ourselves are the, the first people to doubt the fact that God can actually cause a radical transformation. And you know what? If we're going to be cynical about this, then... Yes, because we cannot look into the hearts of other individuals, there are certainly situations where individuals may say that they've had an experience with Jesus Christ or may say that they're transformed. There may even be situations where if you were to talk with them for hours and hours that they'd be convinced that they've had some experience with Jesus Christ. But because we don't have that view and that vision into their hearts, we end up finding out down the line that, Maybe maybe they didn't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or maybe maybe their relationship wasn't as didn't go as deep as as they thought it had, and that we thought it had, and they really didn't change. That certainly happens, but that's not to take away from the fact that Jesus can absolutely transform people. And if we sit here and we approach every single individual that we meet with this attitude that, well, you know what. I'm going to need somebody to prove it before I sit here and move forward with the understanding that they've been made a new creation. Then I think we rob ourselves of truly being able to see when Jesus Christ is doing miraculous things in people's lives. One of the things that I wrote down here uh, in my notes was I said, Don't be shocked when the world treats you like the same old person on the outside when you are a radical new creation on the inside. This is something that, you know, once again, I think many of us have experienced in some way, shape, or form, but we have to guard our own hearts to make certain that we don't actually end up causing this offense against other individuals. It's very easy once you've given somebody a chance or given a group of people a chance to get burned and then to go into the next situation with the same heart of compassion and love and caring. This is something that, you know, I know that I've, uh, I've, I've mentioned before, but, you know, Josh back there has been working with uh, uh, an individual and really a family down near where he lives that has um, really has been in a, a very difficult situation. And because of that situation, he's been trying to work with them and trying to help them out. And one of the things, you know, going through this process that, you know, he's kind of seen is sometimes you'll go and you'll help people out and, They'll, they'll actually take the help. They'll actually turn their lives around. Um, they'll they'll kind of lead to good things. A lot of times, maybe even most of the time, it won't go that way. It won't be good. So the question for us, and where I think faith really truly comes into it is, can we sit here and get bit a hundred times by our own goodwill 
and st- still be willing to go out on that 101st time and do something because we feel that's where God's called us to do. This is where we start getting into, you know, the very difficult to kind of wrap our mind around concept that, you know, God's concept of success is very different than our concept of success. You know, maybe what God's calling us to do is to reach out and to witness to that individual because God knows that there's a long journey that person needs to travel before they actually make a commitment. Maybe the reason why we need to offer help and assistance to that person is because that's going to be one data point in their life and after data point, after data point, after data point, all of a sudden they realize all these people want to help me out and all I've ever done is take advantage of them. Maybe that's a part of their transformation. So often what I think people do, especially in a society that is as affluent and educated as as we are here in America, we tend to gatekeep our own sense of charity and compassion instead of going out on faith the way that we see Christ going out on faith, the way we see the apostles going out on faith. There, there are very few instances we see of some something where uh, Christ or one of the apostles you know, had somebody come up to them and need love, need compassion, need forgiveness, and before they offer that, they put some kind of condition on it first and said, well, before you do that, you need to go do this. More often than not, the examples that we're seeing are examples where first and foremost is you're forgiven or we're going to do this thing for you. Sometimes there's some kind of condition in there just to help tangibly make the connection between what Christ is going to do and their own will. We do see things like uh, people washing themselves in the pool of Siloam and things where Jesus told them and said, go over there and go do that and you're going to be healed. Uh, you know, So there, there is kind of a, an action, a call and a response that goes on sometimes, but that's not to say that there's a condition on Christ's own mercy. Look no further, we talked about this last week, than the, the criminal that was sitting on the cross beside Christ. This is an individual who didn't do anything to earn one iota of forgiveness or compassion from Jesus Christ. He was already on death's doorstep, hanging right beside Jesus Christ. And all he did was change his heart. And that was sufficient for Christ. And it's when you get to, you, you see examples like that in the Bible that you can understand a little bit more when Christ says time and time again, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Because what Christ ultimately wants is not some proof on the outside that somebody has changed, but he wants to know that on the inside that we have truly become a new creation, that we have allowed Jesus Christ to make us something that we couldn't have been of our own power. And so we, as followers of Christ, as the body of Christ, owe it to other individuals to go out on faith when we see people who claim to have gone through these experiences and to work with them, not with a skeptical heart, but with a heart that says, I want to disciple you. I want to help you through this. I believe what you say. Okay, I have no way to know. You can be lying to my face, but a part of me putting my pride on the shelf and saying that I am willing to be taken advantage of because it's not about me winning in any of these situations is being willing to say, I'm going to take this at face value that you had this relationship with Christ. Let's work on discipling you and getting you a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? If that individual is truly not transformed, then eventually that will be revealed. All those things will come to light. And even if you're dealing with the best actor on the face of the earth, God will know. And your job is not to sit here and suss out whether they have gotten right with God. Your job is to be a part of the body of Christ and to reach out to help build that person up, give them the compassion they need so that if they have made that change in their life, that they can continue growing. And maybe if they have not really made that change in their life, maybe through your own love and through your own compassion, maybe they actually will. 
So often this idea of conversion and commitment to Christ is a journey and not simply a flash moment like it is with Paul. And so we all can be a part of that journey when we are willing to sit here and not be the skeptics, not be the the Nazareans who are around Jesus questioning whether this individual could truly have changed from who he was before. Let's continue on with this story. You know, we end up seeing immediately after this, the uh, Nazareans use this phrase that was actually uh, very popular in that day and age. You know, some people, I've heard people say this is like a scriptural phrase, but it's actually, this is actually kind of a cultural colloquialism in kind of the Greek world. Uh, starting in verse 23, then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that, t- uh, what we've heard that took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown also. This is very interesting. So when they say this proverb, understand, they're not talking about like the book of Proverbs. They're saying, again, this is a colloquial phrase uh, that you, you may have heard yourself before, doctor heal thyself, typically is how people say it. And what they're doing here is they're looking at Christ and they're questioning the fact that can Christ really be different than who we know him to be? So they're putting their own understanding of the situation up at the pedestal and putting the onus on the person claiming to be Christ to prove that their disbelief is wrong. This is one of the areas where I think a lot of Christians today do end up running afoul. So often when you see people who have end up having these situations where they've walked away from the church, they've walked away because maybe there was a situation in which they were praying to God that, God, this is the outcome that I need. And because they didn't get that outcome, they walked away from the church. Maybe it was because they saw something in the church that you know they just couldn't understand or saw behavior that they couldn't accept, and so they end up walking away and going a different route. Well, God, if, if you're really God, then how could you allow people like that to represent you? And really when we do that, it's kind of this very very soft form, this this almost kind of uh, more more victimy kind of form of looking at it and saying, God, if you're are if you are who you say you are, then I need you to prove it to me because I was hurt. And when you kind of reword it that way, you can see maybe there's a shred. And even even if not even if it's not a huge ego issue, you can see there's a shred of pride in there. Because lest we forget that pride can come in all kinds of form. It doesn't have to be the kind of just brash arrogance that you see people display. It can also be in us just asserting that our own understanding of a given situation is what reigns supreme. And it's God's job to prove my understanding wrong. And then I'll go out and do whatever he wants me to do. This is exactly what you see the Nazareans doing to Jesus when they're saying... That okay, we've heard the stories. So they, so, which implies they've heard about Jesus. They've heard about the miracles from testimony from other people. They see Jesus saying it himself, and they're not asking for a sign out of an acknowledgement that they're weak. They're asking for a sign because they know what they know, and it's your job, God, to prove me wrong. You can kind of see where this is a little bit different than in situations like with Gideon and the fleece, where Gideon flat out stated when he was asking God for a sign that it was because he was weak. You know, you go back and read it, and he even even asked God, you know, please forgive me for asking for this again, but I just need this. He was afraid, he was scared, and God in his compassion showed him a sign to seal up his heart and to assure his faith so that he could go do these amazing things that God had called Gideon to do. This is a very different situation where these aren't individuals who are saying, we acknowledge we have weak faith and can you just help us to have stronger faith because we have this baggage in knowing the past. There's a sense of pride and a sense of arrogance here. And so we end up seeing how Jesus responds to them. In verse 24, he also said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
very big praise right there. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow and Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elijah's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman and Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that was their, uh, that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So what you can see Jesus explaining there when he's talking about widows and leprosy and all that is there are these periods of time in the past where individuals through their own lack of faith ended up missing out on the blessings of, of, of God. And what we end up seeing is that Jesus Christ in his own ministry would end up basically avoiding his own hometown for pretty much the rest of his ministry because of their lack of faith, because they questioned who he was. Not out of an acknowledgement of their own weakness or out of their own imperfections, but out of their arrogance. And as a result, we don't see Jesus actually conducting many miracles here or preaching here. They were denied the blessing because their hearts were not open to it. And it's in that that we get to the actual issue associated with this kind of weak faith. That when we are not willing to see that there is a God that can do things that we don't understand, that can cause transformation, that can sit here and serve a radically different role than maybe we knew him as before, that we end up having eyes and, and hearts that are closed to all of the things that, that God is doing. Something I've referenced several times in the past is that uh, Meredith did a uh, a, a girls Bible study with some youth years ago and in doing that a big part of it was uh, was uh, uh, looking for lovely right and in this looking for lovely thing what they did was uh, they, they emphasized actually keeping like a jar and writing down things that you saw just little things being on the lookout for them and putting them in the jar to say these are things I could see that were just kind of these amazing these these cool little things and as you can imagine it starts out just being people doing it to go through the motion you know saying like I had a good day because I thought I was going to be late for class or youth right I thought I was going to be late for class and I ended up making their own time like little things like that but then as it goes on things become like a little bit more coincidental you know I thought uh, I was going to uh, I thought I was going to miss an assignment, but I ended up getting contacted by somebody who was asking me a question and reminded me I need to do the assignment, so now I, didn't, I wasn't late on my assignment. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you start getting these really, really cool things in there about, you know, I invited my friend to church and didn't know that they had never been to church before, and they ended up coming and asking me about Jesus afterwards. And you start seeing cooler and cooler and cooler things, and all it takes is having a heart and having eyes that are open to the fact that God is, in fact, working in our lives, that God is doing miraculous things all the time, whether we recognize it or not. And we deny ourselves the blessing when we're not willing to, to have that kind of faith, to have that kind of humility to say, I don't understand everything everything around me, but I know God is acting. So I want to be looking for it constantly. And hopefully I pray that in doing that, God would reveal his greatness to me and he would reveal his blessings to me because then my faith will be strengthened and I will have all those signs that I'm asking for. So you can see how through that sense of humility and through that desire, you know, that, that, that kind of forcing your, your weak body 
to want to see all of these different things around you, suddenly you start receiving just the manifold blessings of God around you by, by seeing how God is working on a, on a regular basis. And when you do that, see if you don't start identifying how God is doing these things where there's not really any other explanation other than the fact that God was directly involved in it. The exact same thing applies to how we interact with people. When we look at individuals, if the only other thing that we see when we look at them is who they were in the past, then really what we're doing is we're actually holding these people to a higher bar than Jesus Christ is holding them to. Because Jesus Christ looks at them and says, I don't care what you did in the past. If your heart is repentant, then I'm freely accepting you. I'm welcoming you into my family. So when we turn around and we say, that's good that Jesus did that, but but I need you to prove it to me. Then what we're doing is we're asking for a higher burden on them to prove that they've been made a new creation than God himself is asking for. And when you put it that way, it doesn't really sound fair. It doesn't really sound like it makes sense. The, the, the flaw that we all have that's kind of built into our DNA to hold grudges and to hold people's past against them is very strong. And I hate to put it this way because, you know, it can come across as maybe being condescending or something, but I feel like it's so much worse in like a small rural community because you just can't get away from anything that you've ever done in the past. You know, if that's who you are, that's who you are. You know, if you've done something before, then that's who, you, that's who you're always going to be. There is no redemption for the sinner in a small community. That's just kind of the unfortunate nature of things. But it's for this reason that we have to be prepared when we experience changes in our own lives to go out boldly, understanding that regardless of who accepts us and who doesn't accept us, that Christ himself has freely accepted us. And if Christ has accepted us, then who else do we have to fear? But let's not forget the Barnabases in our lives as well. I kind of glazed over that a little bit. But God places people in our lives to help us on these journeys. It's that sometimes those people are not the people that we've always known. Sometimes it might mean that it's a, a different a different crowd of people. You know, there's lots of different thoughts that people have about whether you you know need to abandon your your old friends or keep your old friends or whatever it is. But regardless of what your opinions are on the on on those kind of aspects of your life, we can have whole sermon series on influences you have from the, from the world and whatnot. The one thing you do need to be looking for are who are the people who are acting as the body of Christ in your life. And even if you have people in your life who maybe have known you all along who are are Bible-believing Christians, you know, not even saying bad Christians, people who have, you know, have their own relationship with God and they know the Bible in and out, but yet they seem to have that flaw where they can't let go of the past, then maybe what that means is maybe God has other Barnabases in your life. Maybe God has other people who don't have this same hang-up who are willing to approach you and say, I may know, I may not know anything about you in the past. But what I do know is that you have a heart. You are professing a belief in Jesus Christ. So you know what? Let's move on from there. Let's sit here and explore the depth of the love of Jesus and explore what it means to be truly a new creation in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. And let's, let's lean on one another. That's what it means to have a Barnabas in your life. And if you feel like you don't have that kind of Barnabas in your life, I mean, especially for people who are here and, you know, what I told the people at the home church and their home church video, then just look around you because you have some people who are right here. You have, you know, pastors and ministers and things like that in your life. 
Look to those people because those are the people who are going to act as the body of Christ in your life are going to help you as you undergo that transformation on the outside that you've already experienced on the inside. But regardless of what you feel like you may be experiencing or regardless of what change you feel like you're undergoing and how hard that might be, don't let anybody on the outside cast so much doubt on what God has done on the inside that you end up abandoning your calling. Because Christ has called you to something new and something that is more glorious than what you were in the past or what you've or, or anything that you've done in the past. He's called you to be a new creation. And what God has given, the world can't take away. So don't let their weak faith and don't let their flaws and their sins overshadow the glory of what God has already done. Let's pray. Father God, we all have different we all have different stories, we all have different different pasts and things that we've struggled with and that we continue to struggle with. Father God, we pray that you would help us to be able to to be fair to ourselves, to be able to let go of our own guilt, to be able to forgive ourselves for things that we've done and for people that we've been so that we can so that we can be those new creations that you've called us to be. We pray that as we meet other individuals who have also themselves experienced your your transformational grace, that that you would that you would strengthen them, that you would provide us the opportunity to be the Barnabas in their life, to help them realize what it means to to be truly transformed. And God, we pray for our own our own often weak faiths, that you would help us in situations where it may seem difficult to understand or difficult to believe. But yet, an individual is is proclaiming your name. Help us to have that sense of compassion, that sense of humility to be able to approach that person with a caring and a loving heart to say, let's go deeper with this relationship. Let's let's get to know more and more of this God that, that you you profess with your mouth so that we can we can see what God has called you to do. Father God, you you've you've done so many, so many just inexplicable things in the lives of so many people help us to keep all of the good in mind as we face difficult situations of transformation within our own lives or the lives of other people so that no matter what the world may try to throw at us what doubts they may try to cast upon us we can continue moving forward with boldness and with confidence we pray all these things in your son's precious holy name Amen. amen